Greetings, today's date is March 7th, 2022, and welcome to the third episode of the Commodore Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, we'll cover two very different platformers, Sam's Journey and The Amazing Spider-Man. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Welcome back to the Commodore Chronicles. I'm Adam, bringing you C64 centric news, reviews, hardware guides, and most of all, your feedback. And that feedback is exactly what drives the Commodore Chronicles. And how you can plug into the podcast is listen in at the end of every podcast episode, where the titles being covered in the next episode will be announced. Subsequent posts will be made to twitter.com forward slash C64 Chronicles and facebook.com forward slash C64 Chronicles where feedback can be submitted as well as being submitted by email at Commodore Chronicles at gmail.com. And now that we've got those details out of the way, let's check out some news. It is Anchor Man, not Anchor Lady, and that is a scientific fact. News item number one, ArlaSoft releases a port of the arcade classic Berserk. Berserk was released in the arcades by Stern Electronics in 1980. It saw official ports to the Vectrex, the 5200, and I'd say the most famous was the Atari 2600 version. It has also seen homebrew slash unofficial ports on the ColecoVision, the Atari 7800, and also the NES. But Arlasoft's Berserk port is easily the most graphically accurate version to date. It also features 38 voice samples, though they are downgraded slightly. And the only difference in graphics is that the aspect ratio is cut only a slight few pixels vertically. Plus, it's still as freaking difficult as the arcade game. So great work, Mr. Nick Sherman, Mr. Arlasoft. So you can check out all of Nick's work at arlagames.itch.io. News item number two is a bunch of Sarah Jane Avery-related news. Sarah Jane Avery has announced that she's began development on Zeta Wing 2 and hints that she's working on a sequel to her JRPG hit The Briley Witch Chronicles. She's also collaborated with indie software house Bitmat Soft to release a physical copy of her hit Zetawing. You can check out her work at Sarah Jane Avery, and that's with an O, not an E. So it's A-V-O-R-Y dot itch dot I-O. Or you can check out her Zetawing release at bitmatsoft.co.uk. And our last news item of the day is really big news from developer Icon64. The team behind newer released hit titles like The Shadow Over Hawksmill and The Isle of the Cursed Prophet have been given the green light to develop an official sequel to the 1984 Epic's hit Impossible Mission. That's big news. The original IP is owned by the company BMG, you know, the the company that owns like all sorts of music and videos and stuff like that. But the rights have been licensed to a company called Code 10 Digital. 
So Icon 64 makes incredible games and should be easily able to produce a compelling title deserved of this name. You can follow their progress at facebook.com forward slash icon C64. I'm Kevin Nealon, and that's news to me. And now for our third edition of our C64 Hardware Guide. In the two previous editions of the C64 Hardware Guide, we explored the C64 itself, the system, whether you were going to emulate, or whether you were going to have official hardware, or whether you were going to run through FPGA. And then also, um, the next episode, we looked back on storage and drive replacements and implementations. Um, In today's segment, we're going to look into the display options a Commodore user could possibly use. And I don't think this is going to go over so well. So we'll see how that goes. Option number one. Option number one are official Commodore monitors. Commodore monitors came in various forms over the years. All of them are good options, but not all of them are great, though. The original monitors released for the Commodore 64 were the 1701 and 1702 models. They were manufactured by JVC and feature composite input on the front and a Luma Chroma input on the rear, which is essentially a S-video signal split between two RCA cables. It's not exact, but they do function very similar. If you have a bread bin model, these match wonderfully. Plus, they feature an incredibly solid, low-noise composite input that works wonders with other computers and consoles. You'll see a lot of NES users, a lot of uh, Sega Genesis users, and a bunch of Atari computer users that will use 1701 or 1702 models. The second series of Commodore models were known as the 1802, and there was two models that were actually known as the 1802. One was released by Gold Star, and one was released by Daewoo. Gold Star is now known as LG. Um, Both of them featured good pictures. One of them that was released in coordination with the Plus 4 had this like outer shell on it that was like, I think it was made out of plastic, and I'm not sure if it was plastic or glass, but I do recall of the ones that I saw, they were susceptible to glare. And then the the other ones that came out with the C64C, um, these ones are just really bulky, and they weren't as robust as the original 1701 or 1702 designs. Later models were released with other Commodore products, such as the C128 and the Amiga range of computers. These often featured analog or digital RGB inputs. Of those, most of these were 1084 models, but they were most of them were also developed and produced by Philips. And you could go out and find a bunch of these monitors in generic format as well. They have really good picture, but they are incredibly prone to two major problems. And we'll cover that in the cons. But for the pros, most Commodore monitors 
feature a brilliant picture, especially the original 1701 and 1702s. Also, the 1084s. And the 1701 and 1702 monitors are incredibly well-built, very tank-like. However, that brings us to the cons. The majority of these monitors have either been fully used up, trashed, or are mostly broken. You'll find them on, you know, Facebook Marketplace and on Craigslist, but a lot of them are missing their front panels. Um, a lot of them have very finicky ports. And the 1084 series, which I was mentioning before, have really, really unreliable power switches. I've had two of a generic side of this 1084 monitor called the Magnavox RGB 80 monitor. I've had two of them and both of the power switches broke where the, um, where the latching mechanism in the switch was broken. It was just brittle and didn't stay on. So I would shove, um, I would use guitar picks and I would shove them into the side to keep it pressed down. So, and the other thing is too, I've noticed that they've become incredibly pricey as well. So now that we've talked about that, we might as well talk about option number two. Option number two. And option number two is the consumer CRT television, otherwise known as tube televisions. A consumer CRT can be a really great era-appropriate option for the retro enthusiast. I'm a huge fan of most Sony, Toshiba, Sharp, and JVZ televisions, the curved screen era. I am not a big fan of the flat screen era of CRT televisions, though. I find that over time that they end up with more geometry issues than the curved screen equivalents. So my current CRT is a new old stock 13-inch Magnavox, surprisingly with a DVD player and a single composite input. But I've owned a plethora of CRTs, including three Sony Trinitrons, one of those which was one of the coveted mini Trinis that was a flat screen model. It had quite interesting geometry issues too. Personally, I've been looking for a mid-80s Sony or Panasonic 9-inch desktop television though. We're going to cover the benefits of CRTs in the pro section. Consumer CRTs are fairly inexpensive and generally they are easily acquired. For example, my 13-inch new-in-box Magnavox with the DVD player and single composite input only cost me $25 on Facebook Marketplace. There are many options out there. Um, and a lot of these televisions are surprisingly living really incredibly long lives. So many of them, though, feature S-Video and component inputs as well. And those S-Video, um, you can get a cable for your C64 that takes that Lumachroma signal and adapts it to an S-Video signal. And you get really solid results with that. And as for cons, I only have two areas of contention. I've had varying results with the composite input and also with RF input signals over different models. I've noticed that 
later CRTs that are maybe um, built closer to the 2000 era sometimes have a, a weaker RF signal and don't really have a solid composite signal. However, I do find that ones that were made in the late 80s and early 90s tend to have a better composite signal input and also have stronger RF signals. And then my second area of contention is that consumer CRTs seem to be reaching the end of their life. Mid-tier models like RCA, Zenith, and GE, most of those are looking really bad these days. But I've also noticed that Sony Trinitrons are starting to lose their, their stuff too. They're starting to get really finicky. So when you pick up a consumer CRT from someone on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, you should probably have them plug it in. When you get there, you want to make sure that that television isn't warmed up when you get there. Because usually when a TV warms up, it kind of negates some of the picture problems. It's best to have it cold and fire it up yourself when you get there. You'll notice whether there's color issues, whether there's geometry issues. So definitely feel those things out when you get there. And that leads us to the dreaded option number three. Then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Option number three will quite possibly get me disqualified for retro podcast of the year. But option number three is the dreaded LCD. And I welcomed LCD with open arms. I live in a shoebox-sized home with three other people and a dog. Large CRTs are completely out of the question for me. And that would lead me to three different options. Option number one is a Sony or Sharp 4x3 LCD television. I have a 15-inch Sony Vega. Vega? I guess it's Vega. It's Vega or Vega. I don't know. You, you tell me. LCD with composite, component, and S-video. And I have an S-video cable for my original hardware C64. And though it doesn't have the most crispy of picture, it really gets the job done. And it, it, it's easily seen. So that leads us to option number two. And that's a Dell UltraSharp 2000 FP and WFP series of monitors. Many of these monitors have S-video and composite inputs to go along with their VGA, DVI, and HDMI outputs. The specific models I recommend are the 2407 WFP, which is a widescreen monitor, and the 2001 FP are both really good models that work really well with retro hardware. And then my third option is any modern LCD with a low response time and a retro tink solution. My current solution is either using a Vizio 24-inch 1080p LCD television or a Pixio PX160 portable monitor. Both of these have 4.3 modes and look great through my Gideon's Logic Ultimate 64 equipped C64. The RetroTINK solution allows for lag-free, 
high-quality video conversion from composite, S-video, and component standards to a standard HDMI signal. So let's cover some pros and cons. As for pros, most people have modern televisions that would work great with an addition of a RetroTINK 2X Mini or 2X Pro. They have a smaller footprint for those of us with limited space. And if you get the RetroTINK option, you can use that with a vast majority of your old analog outputting systems anywhere from the NES all the way up to, say, the PS5 and maybe even an early Xbox 360. For cons, the typical composite or S-Video direct out out of a Commodore 64 to an LCD monitor of the first two options doesn't yield the best picture, but it is quite serviceable. And right now, the second con is that RetroTINK hardware is really hard to come by with the chip shortage we have going on. But that does lead us to one final option, option number four. For shalt thou not count, neither count thou to, accepting that thou then proceed to three. Option number four is the professional video monitor, or otherwise known as a PVM or a BVM. And professional video monitors often provide the very best CRT experience in picture. Sony, JVC, Panasonic, and a few other makers made top-notch monitors. Most feature composite, S-video, and RGB inputs. I have experience with them, but I've never personally owned one myself. So we're quickly going to get to the pros. They have the best pictures available for a CRT. However, there is a lot of cons. Con number one, they are extremely priced. A good 14-inch PVM averages between, normally between like 400 and I've seen them go for as much as $1,000. Most of them have heavy hours on them because of their use case that span from the medical industry to security to broadcast television. And also, PVMs and BVMs are often hoarded and extremely rare. So let's wrap this up. So for the Commodore user, what would I recommend? If you can find one and swing the cost, I'd go for a Commodore 1702 or 1084 monitor. There's also the Magnavox and Philips variants of the 1084 that don't feature the Commodore Lumachroma input, but have great pictures. But I think in the 1084, in those uh, variant fields, you're, you should expect just a tiny bit of trouble. Um, I've had, like I said, I had those two Magnavox RGB80 monitors, and both of them had power switch issues. And one also had a flyback issue. So for the time being, I'm going to personally go with a modern LCD screen and my Ultimate 64 equipped Commodore 64 that features an HDMI output built in. And when the time is right, I plan on picking up a RetroTINK 2X Pro. 
So on the next week's episode edition of the C64 Hardware Guide, we're going to look at some joysticks. And now that we have the hardware guide out of the way, let's review some games. Sam's Journey is an action platformer released in 2017. It was programmed and developed by Knights of Bytes and distributed by Protovision. Protovision's year of inception was 1996, and they've been behind such releases as Sarah Jane Avery's Soul Force, Neutron, and Briley Witch Chronicles. They're also behind such really great titles such as MW Ultra, Galencia, and Space Moguls. Sam's Journey's storyline begins during the middle of the night, where Sam hears a noise in his closet and gets up to investigate. Upon closer inspection of his closet, a clawed hand magically snatches him out of his room into a fantastic land. Can you guide Sam through 27 levels strewn across three worlds and help him return himself to his home bedroom? The game starts with a big fall into a body of water. And there is a very basic game mechanic tutorial level where you'll learn the basic functions of Sam. You'll learn how he runs, jumps, and climbs. And then you'll be introduced into a Super Mario 3 slash Super Mario World reminiscent level map where levels match a theme based on the points they reside on that map. The first level of the game is a very much quick and dirty tutorial of other basic functions. You'll be introduced into the magical costumes that Sam will wear to give him different powers. You'll encounter a pirate suit where Sam will have a sword to take out enemies, open chests, and also hit switches. A ninja suit where Sam can attach himself to walls and jump off them like Ryu and Ninja Gaiden, and he can also creep downwards as well. A baseball player suit where Sam can aim and throw fastballs with objects. A very odd disco suit where Sam can spin and float in the air and float slowly to the ground. A vampire suit where Sam can turn into a bat and fly around the level for a limited amount of time. And also, a space suit where Sam gets an extra boost mid-jump with a mini jetpack. As the levels progress in difficulty, specific suits will be required to make it into areas of the level not easily reached. In some areas, you'll need the ninja suit to climb narrow, high areas. Others, you'll need the disco suit to avoid spikes on a big fall. Those specific suits will become really important in fully completing levels with a 100% rating. And that 100% rating comes from collecting all of the diamonds, coins, and trophies in the level. But the game can be completed by merely finishing all 27 levels. And there's endless lives as well. So even so, Sam's journey will keep you busy for much of a day. But now that we've covered the history, storyline, and mechanics of Sam's journey, let's review it. Remember that each review will be featuring four categories. Graphics, sound and music, gameplay, and also will give it an overall score. So for graphics, Sam's journey is a cartoon masterpiece. 
It's incredibly colorful, detailed, and not a single level looks like another. Whether it's a winter wonderland, epic medieval castles, a lush forest, an underground cave, or a mystical pyramid, Sam's journey has an incredibly vast palette of areas. Sam's seven suits are all uniquely detailed and wonderfully animated, and the enemy sprites are vast, broad in scope, and well-crafted as well. It's clear that the Knights of Bites team spent numerous years crafting a AAA-worthy graphical adventure for the eyes. Graphics get a 5 out of 5. For sound and music, my original impressions of Sam's journey weren't as highly rated as the graphics. The opening music features impressive tone, but I'm not so sure I would call it an incredibly compelling score. However, my review kind of was proven wrong from its initial status. As the levels progress, they get continually better. The opening tunes are cheery but kind of grating, but when you reach the ice and castle levels, the score improves dramatically. The sound effects are excellent platformer-esque, easily complementary to the adventures you're on. So I'd give Sound and Music a 4.5 out of 5. Knights of Bites must have taken their grand old time designing challenging and rewarding levels, as this game has easily taken a top position in the genre on the C64. Gameplay is simply incredible. The controls are wonderful and tight. The variety of challenges, power-ups, and enemy types are an AP course in the platforming design. Sam's Journey isn't really Mario Bros-like, but it has the depth and sensibility of something like Mario Bros. 3. Gameplay is darn near perfect with only a handful of frustratingly difficult points that made me hang it up for the night. But nothing is impassable, but everything requires practice and patience. With unlimited lives, you'll have all the chances to succeed. I give gameplay a 5 out of 5. Overall, Sam's Journey ranks up there with Sonic and Mario and Bonk and Doss's Jazz Jackrabbit all classic platformers I'm an avid fan of. Another title that this game reminds me of is Kid Chameleon on the Sega Genesis, but regardless, you will be entertained for hours and then some. And I'm not so sure we'll ever see another platformer of its quality on the C64. I give Sam's Journey a full 5 out of 5. It's worth every penny, and it's an instant classic. And now that I've gushed and loved on Sam's journey, let's see what you guys had to say about it. Malfunction. Need input. Input. All right, right. You got it. Okay. Michael Carrillo said, A most excellent polished game for the C64. If you don't have this in your collection, you are seriously missing out. In his honest opinion, of course. Michel Poru called Sam's Journey the platformer, sets new standards, brings new logic into the genre with save points and checkpoints. All in all, a masterpiece.
a really interesting discussion took place, asking the question if this game would have succeeded on the C64 back in the late 80s, early 90s. There were some interesting arguments. Though many of the C64 ardent would have bought it, like Toreric Bakalund, he feared that the increased interest in newer 16- and 32-bit systems may have pulled a larger developer to more powerful platforms. Anti Iskala remarked that many of the more advanced titles of the 90s weren't exactly commercial successes. Titles such as Mayhem and Monsterland, Turrican 2, and the Creatures games, as well as Rainbow Islands, were all incredible titles, but didn't bring in financial windfalls. The only negative comment came from Raleigh Moritz, who loved the game, remarked on the colorful levels, music, and the polished game mechanics, but his one reserve is that he believed it to be a bit short. I know I personally would go for another two discs and four sides worth of content. Thanks for the feedback, everyone. The Amazing Spider-Man is a puzzle platforming title released in 1990, developed by Oxford Digital Enterprises and published by Paragon Software. It was also simultaneously released on the Amiga, Atari ST, and for DOS, but more on that later. Oxford Digital's catalog isn't necessarily a powerhouse, but their titles are often well-reviewed. Of that catalog, I have found experiences with the Trivial Pursuit titles they published, as well as this one. Paragon Software released a plethora of superhero titles, including X-Men, The Amazing Spider-Man and Captain America and Doctor Doom's Revenge, The Punisher, and also unique titles like the Mega Traveler series that I played with my buddy John as a kid. Paragon Software titles were often middling in quality. The storyline in The Amazing Spider-Man goes as follows. Mary Jane has been kidnapped by the nefarious Mysterio. Rather than challenge Spider-Man's physical prowess, Mysterio subjects our hero to a grand mental challenge in a movie studio setting. When booting this game for the first time, the average comic book fan would be hoping for an action-packed experience. I know I certainly did for the first time I fired this up on my Tandy 1000, which is where I first experienced the game. Young Adam was disgusted at first. (laughs) But the curiosity of a 10-year-old gave in. Like I mentioned, The Amazing Spider-Man is a puzzle platformer and you'll be piloting a slow and methodical superhero protagonist. He can climb walls and walk on the ceiling as well as swing from his uh, web and also climb his web. And your only weapon is your web. And that'll stun the enemy for a short period of time, and that's all. It'll become your job to figure out how to get Mary Jane out. You'll need to uncover numerous secrets to advancing through the six pseudo takes of the studio film environment 
you'll have to figure out the sequences of switches and triggers to proceed to the next screen. You'll need to avoid fire and rats and zombies and getting crushed. And then you'll have to navigate unpredictable gravity and plenty of head-scratching platforming. Each screen will feature a title listed at the top of the screen. These titles will detail the scene being shown, such as a horror set covered in blood and featuring a mummy, and scaling skyscrapers, the sewers, and spaceships say that five times fast. But now that we've covered the history and basic details and mechanics of the game, let's review it. Once again, remember that we review all titles based on graphics, sound and music, gameplay, and then we'll give it an overall score. Graphically, The Amazing Spider-Man is fairly colorful, but basic and lacking in graphical detail. The character motions are droning and agonizingly slow. Movement of many of the platforms happen with a complete disregard for smooth motion. I would give graphics a middling 2.5 out of 5. Sound and music on The Amazing Spider-Man is nearly absent altogether. I grew up with the DOS version, and that had an ad-lib soundtrack, but it still featured beeper sound for all of Spider-Man's web shots and climbing and walking and falling and all, all that kind of stuff. The sound effects were done to the PC speaker. The C64 features beeps, and that is it. They're not even convincing beeps either. This is a first for any of my shows, but sound and music for The Amazing Spider-Man deserves a zero out of five. It is tragically and criminally incomplete. The Amazing Spider-Man's puzzles get insanely complicated, some of which no one in their right mind would suspect to have to do. It took me three solid months as a kid to figure out how to close the take one gate. You know how in movies they have that like clicker where they say take one and they click the clicker? Well, you're supposed to climb to the top of it and then it falls down and opens a gate above you. Well, I didn't figure that out for a solid three months. And what stinks is this game is really not overly interesting. With slow action and a lack of direction, I give gameplay a 3 out of 5. So in this case, I would give an overall score for The Amazing Spider-Man a 2.5 out of 5. I would more recommend this game for DOS, Amiga, or the Atari ST. All those versions are better. Um, the level design is a little better on all those sides, and the level design on the Commodore 64 version is actually cut back a little bit. It's not that this game is awful. It's just that you shouldn't go into it with the idea that you are going to have an action platformer. It's really a methodical puzzle game. So, do I go back and play this from time to time? I sure do, because... I played it as a kid. So, once again, I give it a 2.5 out of 5. But let's see what you guys thought about it. Malfunction. Need input. Input. All right, right. You got it. Okay. 
Aaron Bott said he really liked the game. The fact that you could shoot webs in any direction and climb on most surfaces as part of a way of making your way through each room was Spider-Man enough for him. He didn't beat it either, but he's pretty sure he has his original floppy still, which he ended up finding. Ian Lefkowitz enjoyed the game too and said he never finished it as well, but kept at it for quite some time. Harry on Facebook said, I never knew they made it for the C64. By that point, I was in the MS-DOS world for college and really liked the DOS version. And he said also that he was going to check out the C64 one. And honestly, I didn't expect a lot of feedback, and I only got about six or seven comments. This game was obscure. It didn't get um, a big, giant commercial release. And by 1990, there were some really great superhero games that had been released. Um, Batman the Cape Crusader on the Commodore 64 came out in uh, 1988. Batman, the awesome Sunsoft Batman, had come out on the NES in 1989. And then Sunsoft had already also released the Batman game for the, uh, the Sega Genesis. So I think a game like this that really featured primitive graphics, sound, um, really got looked over. Um, and rightfully so. I don't think it was that great of a game. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the feedback that I did get. And I look forward to your feedback on the next episode. Well, that's a wrap on the third episode of the Commodore Chronicles podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for your feedback. If you want to provide feedback on our next episode featuring Stunt Car Racer and Rock and Bolt, look to the feeds on twitter.com forward slash C64 Chronicles as well as facebook.com forward slash C64 Chronicles. Feedback can also be submitted via email at commodorechronicles at gmail.com. And seriously, folks, get out there, play your Commodore. It's worth the loading time.